Welcome to another episode of Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Alice Benson. Today I have the privilege of talking to Brian Trainer, who is Professor of Philosophy and Charles S. Casasa Chair of Social Values at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. And Brian has written a wonderful book. It is called Melancholic Joy and it's subtitled On Life Worth Living. I want to talk to Brian about the book, why he wrote the book, and if he has any ideas for those of us who do want to have a life worth living. So first of all, uh, Brian, uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad that we're having this conversation. A book like this probably took a great deal of effort and probably its gestation was long. Yeah, uh, that's a perceptive uh, guess there. Um, I'd say this book took me between two and three, probably closer to three times longer than any of the other books that I've worked on, uh, in part because there was a real uh, personal element to it. It wasn't a, a sort of abstract or theoretical question for me. It was... Um, you know, it was a real question about the ways that life seems to suggest uh, despair, and then on the other side of the, the coin, the way that life seems to call us to sort of celebrate joyfully and, and to be grateful. So, um, yeah, as a, as a little anecdote, I'm, I'm sure uh, editing can take care of this if you don't want it. Uh, a long time ago, a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Merrill Westfall, I gave a paper at, at a conference, and uh, it was a paper on on prayer and a paper on whether prayer was most appropriately sort of an individual exercise or whether it was part of a community, a kind of corporate endeavor. And uh, I, I gave, I was a young scholar at the time, and I, I gave uh, a paper and Merrill raised his hand afterwards, and he asked a philosophical question, the nature of which uh, escapes me at the moment, I can't remember. But a second part of his question was sort of, well, so what? Kind of, why does this matter? Uh, and it, that sounds harsh in the retelling, but he didn't mean it that way. Um, and when I was responding to his question, my initial training uh, as an academic, and I know, Bruce, you've written a great deal as well, and we're both trained to sort of make arguments and defend them and things like that. My initial response was this knee-jerk academic um, response, you know, this calls for a careful hermeneutic reading, and we have to look at both sides of the question. And something in it, uh, something in the moment made me pause, and I said, well, actually, Merrill, you know, the reason I wrote this paper in that case was because it was a question I needed answered in my own life. I was trying to figure out, I, I tend, like many academics, to be a, a somewhat introverted and solitary person, and I was wondering if I should be committing myself more to community in, in any number of different expressions in my life, socially, politically, spiritually, and things like this. Uh, and Merrill and a number of other people we both know got a good laugh out, out of that response that I said, well, I just wrote this because I needed to figure it out for myself. And ever since that time, at least one of the motivations for anything I've written has been in part that I'm trying to figure out a question for myself. And so, yeah, 
the gestation of this book took a lot a long time I was grappling with melancholic um, impulses in myself and trying to weigh those against the real joy I feel and the, the real joy I feel in the world and and the gratitude I have for that and trying to weigh them against each other well that's a very basic uh, question that uh, certainly concerns uh, pretty well everything we do in life yeah you know it's interesting the 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 why question it seems to me that one of the things that we try and do when we teach is to help students see like why something is important okay so despair doesn't really work it's it's self-limiting and kind of in its worst instances ends in suicide evasion doesn't work because it is merely an evasion and and eventually fails so there's a question of what is life going to look like after that naive innocence is ripped away and what I argue in the book is that we have an option and it's only an option it's not a guarantee to come back to joy in what philosopher Paul Ricoeur would call a sort of second naivete so we begin with the innocent naivete of a child or of a person living a life of privilege in the global north where of course the world calls us to joy at some point we're all confronted with legitimate and inescapable reasons to potentially despair that could lead it to despair but it could also lead us to an option after despair or an option after doubt in which we re-embrace the world with a kind of love with a kind of of gratitude and joyfulness that's not the same as the first naivete that we lost right once we once we fall from grace as it were once we once our naive joy our innocent joy is snatched from us we can never we can never get it again the gates of Eden close behind us but we can decide consciously to embrace the reasons for joy in life in light of the the reasons for despair um, it's not saying the reasons for despair are not there the um, it's it's the the second naivete the joy of second naivete takes seriously both the idea that reality counsels despair and the idea that reality calls us to joy thanks Brian uh, that is really helpful um, leads me to wonder though the question of how hope fits into this um, I suspect that the naive hope is probably not going to be what you're looking for right and there are probably forms of false hope um, and of course someone could think oh well so Dr. Trainer is trying to suggest that we become optimistic. What would you say to that? So that's a, that's a good question. I certainly uh, hope that this book isn't optimistic. Um, I, I joked a little bit as I was discussing it with friends when it first came out uh, in, in 2021 
that, um, well, and actually I say explicitly in the book, I think both optimism and pessimism are distortions of reality from only looking at part of the evidence. Because I think the evidence for despair is there and the evidence is joy for there. The evidence for joy is there. And I think the responsible person looks at all the evidence, not just at the part he or she happens to be fixated on. Um, hope's an interesting question. As, as you might know from the book, the first chapter is dealing with these very depressing realities. They're certainly depressing to me. And the last chapter is kind of a conclusion that wraps up this, this image of a second naivete. The middle four chapters try to deal not with the causes for despair, but for, for four ways in which we might resist or, or cope with a reality that counsels despair. And those are, those chapters speak about joy, vitality, which is a word I used to describe the, the sort of active body in the material world, people doing sorts of things, hope, and then love. Hope, which you've asked about, is an interesting one for me because um, there's a lot. There is a lot more that could be said about the topics I grapple with in Melancholic Joy, and you and I have talked about those in other papers, and you know as much about this as anyone. But I specifically bracketed any kind of of theological speculation about anything beyond this world and this life, right? I'm, I'm trying to make a case in melancholic joy for melancholic joy in this world, even if this world ends absolutely. So that, that must change the way that we think about hope, right? Because whatever I want to say about hope, my life is going to come to an end. Uh, the, it's hard for me to say it, but the lives of the people I love are going to come to an end. Uh, the civilizations that I love and admire and that you love and admire are going to come to an end. On a long enough time horizon, uh, it's not even the two vast and trunkless legs of Shelley's Ozymandias. It's nothing. It's the nothingness of thermodynamic equilibrium in the emptiness of space. So hope in the way I'm talking it can't really be hope about some eschatological future that's going to arrive and justify all the suffering that we endure now. So I make a distinction, again, building on other philosophers here. I want to acknowledge that, that I'm, I'm really working with thinking that, that other people have, have done preceding me. I think there's a difference between hoping that and hoping in. Um, and I'm drawing here on a distinction, again, Gabriel Marcel makes between faith that versus faith in. So when, when we have faith that some X or something, or hope that some X, we're hoping about some determinant thing in the future that may or may not come to pass, right? Um, and I think that kind of hope is often frustrated in, in individual cases, and maybe is always frustrated on a long enough time horizon. So if I have an illness, I might hope that I will be cured. But even if I hope, even if that hope is answered, eventually there will be an illness from which I'm not cured, right? So once you say, if, if you place your hope in a hope that, 
that hope might be frustrated and maybe inevitably will be frustrated. But if instead you hope in something, that's more like a commitment on your own part to a certain reality, right? So come back to the question of faith, and let's talk about this in a non-religious way. If I have faith that my wife will do or be something, that, that faith could be answered. My wife does that thing, remains faithful or supports me or any number of other things. But it could also not come to pass for all kinds of reasons, right? Um, but if instead I say I have faith in my wife, right, in who she is, a commitment to our shared life together and the reality we have, in a sense, that faith can never really be frustrated except by failing on my side, right? So if I have faith in my wife, even if she frustrated me in some way, right, if she was unfaithful or something like that, that itself doesn't necessarily undermine my faith in her. That That's something in which I have at least a co-constitutive role, right? Similarly, if I have hope that the world will be saved from climate change, hope that Russia will withdraw from Ukraine, those are hopes that may well be frustrated. Um, I don't think Russia is about to withdraw from Ukraine, and I don't think we are going to head off catastrophic climate change. But if instead of hope that, I have hope in the world, that's more like a commitment to the goodness of the world that is here, no matter what other things transpire in it, right? In this world, things that I love are going to die or pass away. Uh, they're subject to entropy. In this world, lots of other things that I hope for won't come to pass or will come to pass only to then fade away. But if I hope in the world, that's more like a commitment to the goodness of being or the goodness of the world in spite of all the other causes to despair that are, that are happening or, or coming to pass as well. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a bait and shift on the word hope because I'm using it differently than I think some people might in a non-philosophical way. But normal hope, I think of, uh, back to this issue of naivete, I think for a lot of people, normal hope is really what I would think of as a kind of wish fulfillment. It's like a little kid saying, I wish that I get a, I hope that I yes. get a horse for Christmas. Yes. The, the hope that I'm talking about, a kind of deeper hope, is a commitment to this world and the goodness of this world. Because I do think the goodness of the world is undeniable and ineradicable. It's a commitment to the goodness of the world despite the abattoir of history, despite the fact that everything is subject to entropy, despite the fact that things I love suffer and die. Despite those things, in the background, there's a, there is a goodness that's there that seems to me to be not, not eternal, well, maybe eternal with qualifications, but, but persistent in a way that's just waiting for me to recognize it and acknowledge it. And that's what hope is in this book. It's a, it's a commitment to the world, despite the fact that 
it might be falling down around our ears, but there's a goodness there at the core of it still. That raises a question for me, and that is, um, did writing this book cause you to think differently about how you define good and evil or good and bad? Yeah, maybe to some degree. So uh, again, I, I wrote this book under a certain kind of self-conscious constraint, right? And, and that was that I didn't want I wanted the book to speak to as wide an audience as possible. And so I didn't want to assume any thick theological commitments or right, right. philosophical commitments. Um, but the one, it, this is sort of comes at the end of the first chapter, right? I, so I, I think melancholic joy is compatible with atheism. I think it's compatible with a, a sort of complete thoroughgoing materialism. I think it's also compatible with someone being a Catholic or a Hindu or a Buddhist. But what I don't think it's compatible with is nihilism, right? So I think if, if you're going to uh, put me to the pins and ask if there's any commitment here on my part about evil or goodness or about the goodness of being, it would be a sort of very basic commitment that being is better than non-being that being itself is good in some sense, that people want, that we ought to af affirm that being is good. <clears throat> and we can, we can hash that out in, in an extended and more nuanced way with respect to life itself being good and things like that, existence being good. But the goodness of being is this kind of commitment I have at the base of this book. And I argue in the book in some detail that I think it's actually a commitment that everyone shares because I don't think what nihilism means and what pessimism means are, as you know, you're sort of an expert on Nietzsche among many other things, they're, they're up for debate, right? What someone means by nihilism is not always clear. Um, but, but if by nihilism we meant something like nothing matters, there's nothing that's valuable. Or if by pessimism we mean literally etymologically that the worst pessimists will come to pass. I think as I've just formulated them here, I'm not saying this is true of other of your listeners who might have more nuanced versions of either of those positions, but as I've just formulated pessimism and nihilism here, I think pessimism and nihilism are temptations that every thinking person must grapple with and they're sometimes intellectual games that clever undergraduates play with but they're not lived realities for anyone nobody nobody lives as a true pessimist or a true nihilist right i think i think what pass, passes for pessimism among many people i respect is anti-optimism and I'm, I'm against optimism as well, so I'm on board with that. Um, so yeah, I think that, um, I think when put to the pins, no one, no one who himself or herself or themselves is a victim of violence or injustice reacts as a nihilist. Nobody thinks like, oh, this is just something that's happening and it has no meaning. We, when we ourselves are victims, we often 
call out about the injustice of it. You know, if I'm being assaulted by someone, I don't say, stop, your interpretation of this is not congenial to mine. I say, stop, this is wrong. And I think in my heart at that moment, I believe that it's wrong. I don't believe it's just something that's happening. So I think nihilism and pessimism um, are important to grapple with, but I don't think anyone's really a pessimist or real a nihilist. And therefore, even though there might be some people who say they disagree with me, I think a lot of us have this lived commitment to something like the idea that there, there is a being, or not, not a being as in a thing, that being is good, that being itself is good. And I think one can be committed to that as a Hindu, as a Catholic, as a Buddhist, all in different ways, as a straight up atheist materialist in yet a different way. I, I don't think I'm asking anyone to commit themselves to a belief, philosophical or religious, that isn't one we actually all hold in a kind of uh, very native, very deep-seated way. So. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. You know, one of the things I, I have often thought about is the fact that certainly in the American evangelical world in which I grew up, um, relativism uh, probably was the biggest boogeyman, mm. uh, but uh, nihilism was certainly one of those things, too, that the, most people didn't know that word, so relativism is a little easier. But I used to say to my students, you know, there really aren't any relativists. People may draw the line differently, you know, than you do. They, they may say, well, this is okay, but this other thing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm against that. Um, but there aren't any real relativists. No one could possibly live that way. Just, right. just what you said, you know, we, we all have senses of injustice, and if you have a sense of injustice, then it's not relative. So right. <laughs> something's, something's wrong. I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting about what you were saying, um, and by the way, just to be clear, I fully agree with what you're saying, um, but I also want to point out that in the American evangelicalism that I was raised in, um, part of the belief was that God has something like a purpose for each and every person's mm, life. Yeah. I'm trying to think in my own mind, I, literally I've been thinking about this in the past a week or so, when did I first start to realize that that notion made no sense? I don't know. It was, it was late teens, early 20s, um, where I started to think, wait a minute, really? God has a plan for everyone's life? I mean, there have been billions and billions of people, and God has had a plan for each of, of those people's lives? That seems really hard. Not that God couldn't have such a plan. It's just that it seems really hard to imagine that that would be the case. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, if God really does have a plan like that, then then that makes God even even worse because, obviously, if that's his plan, a whole lot of people have lived through pretty miserable things yeah. that supposedly God planned. Yeah. And so then that started me down this, this road of thinking, well, actually, the problem is that even if you say something like, well, there's a God, therefore there's meaning, blah, 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 that in a very abstract sense may make perfectly reasonable sense. 
but it actually doesn't really do much work in helping me right now when I'm going through a situation which is awful or when something really terrible happens to us. Um, even if you say something like, well, this is all part of God's plan, maybe you, you can see that as, as some way of making it all better. But at least from my perspective, it, it doesn't really do, yeah. do very much. I, I think that's right, Bruce. And it, um, I mean, one of the ways I talk about this in the book, I, I mentioned earlier theodicy, right? Which I'm sure many of your listeners know about, but it's sort of, there are many different versions of it, but it's, it's generally the logic that the things that we perceive as wrong or evil really aren't wrong or evil in the way we think they are, because there's a larger picture that we can't see in which they fit in or they're justified in some way, right? That um, I, I don't want to reduce, there are some theodicies that are quite sophisticated. I don't want to reduce them to a caricature. But when I explain it to undergraduates, I say, look, it, this is a little bit like uh, telling a child to eat her vegetables rather than dessert. And the child screaming like, it's an unjust world. How can there be vegetables <laughs> instead of dessert? It's horrible. And you just think to the child, well, look, it's because you don't understand. You don't have a big enough perspective to see that actually it's better for you to develop a taste for vegetables and a moderation with respect to dessert. And not only is that true when you're talking to the child, but the child herself will realize that and be grateful for it when she's older. And so the logic of theodicy is similar in the sense that it seems to suggest the things that seem terrible to me natural disasters that destroy huge parts of the earth, including human settlements and displace people. These are all part of some larger plan that a perfectly powerful, perfectly good, perfectly benevolent being has made, and it, I just can't see the perfection. Okay, so theodicy is something like that. There are different versions, there are more nuanced accounts, but to me, the scandal of the logic of theodicy is as follows, right? Um, on, its, on its best, most charitable reading, that is a bitter, bitter drought to swallow, right? Yes. I, I mean, nobody should go to a mother grieving a dead child and say, this is all part of a perfectly good plan, right? If, a, if someone said that, they should be slapped. Um, so at, in its best, most charitable account, it is a bitter drought to drink. And I think more often it's just an obscenity to suggest that this is part of a, a perfect plan of some sort. And I think that's because theodicy rests on what I call the, the sort of logic or the implication of the but, B-U-T, ellipsis, right? So what the logic of theodicy is, is says, it says the world is full of suffering and tragedy, but dot, 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 ellipsis. And the logic of the but is always an attempt to justify or explain away the evil. It's like somebody saying, I'm not a racist, but, and you can, you can be sure that they're about to say something racist when they say that, right? What melancholic joy is, is not the logic of the but, but the logic of the and. So not the world is full of suffering, but, now I'm gonna try and justify it, but rather the world is full of suffering and dot 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 ellipsis well and what and it's also full 
of incredible beauty and love that really does seem like it could conquer death between two people and reasons for gratitude that we're here to witness it at all even if we ultimately have to die and to me at least the logic of the and is not scandalous in the way the logic of the but is because it doesn't try and explain away the suffering as if it doesn't matter the suffering does matter it's here we have to recognize it and deal with it and try and ameliorate it where we can but attention to the suffering and the causes for despair ought not to blind us on the other side to the real reasons to celebrate the time that we do have here with each other and the the beauty all around us and so to me that's an important distinction the, the but versus the and the theodicy versus the melancholic joy that is i think very wise i think that's a very important distinction to make yeah it's it's the the, the but doesn't seem like it's going to, to go anywhere right yeah um because the, the, the <laughs> that leads you down different kinds of paths including the ones where you try and explain why these evil things are actually actually good right and that is often very dangerous yeah I, I think that's right, at least as I've read Theodicy, and, and this is something about which you might know uh, more than myself, given the, the different kinds of things we've, we've written and, and thought about. But I just, yeah, it's just very difficult for me to swallow Theodicy uh, in, in the way it's usually presented, um, because it, it forces me to accept things that it just doesn't seem like we ought to accept. Uh, I... I'm, there's so many different ways of putting what you just said, but one way is, if you were, th theodicy, of course, obviously is the is is the attempt to explain God, right? Um, and right, you know, the the first problem is that if God is truly God, then probably you or I are not going to be able to explain God. So that seems like a project that mm, is just not going to get off the ground. Um, but if you could explain God, it seems then the problem is that God turns out to be a pretty miserable being. Yeah. If if this is if this is God's plan that all these evil things would happen, that that doesn't really make you think too highly of God. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, and and there there's all sorts of great literary. Um, sort of depictions of this from the brothers Karamazov to contemporary films and books and stuff like that. It's just very difficult to accept that for the reasons you're saying, I think. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's part of the reason I try and, I tried to write the book and I try and make the argument in a way that doesn't rely, as I said uh, earlier, on any of these claims that something else is gonna come afterwards that's gonna justify the suffering I was just um, repeating this with a new example. So this is a new example that just came came uh, to light for me for a paper I gave a little while ago. Um, and Ralph Waldo Emerson and his wife Lydian lost their son Waldo uh, at five years old. I can't remember what illness took him, whether it was tuberculosis or yellow scarlet fever or something like that. And Lydian wrote in her journal. I do not think 
or I do not believe that God can compensate me for the sorrow of existence. And she's basically saying, look, there's nothing you could put after that but that would justify Waldo's death, right? Um, so again, I, I do want to recognize that there's, you know, there's a kind of philosophical, intellectual jujitsu, or you, know, you can kind of twist. People do have sophisticated ways to try and explain this, but I just don't think, again, that they're, they're existentially satisfying to most people. Um, when, when, again, when suffering uh, and tragedy visits us, which it will eventually for all of us. Um, so to myself, you know, not only is the, not only is the butt of theodicy less, it's harder for me to accept it intellectually. I think it's also less consoling, or maybe it's less consoling because it's hard to accept it intellectually. It's less consoling um, existentially, right? H Hannah Arendt writes that what stills the fear of death is not hope, by which she means hope for a world to come, hope, th hope th that there will be a but, that you know, but there's a w another world coming. What stills the fear of death is not hope, but gratitude, right? Not hope for another world, but gratitude for this one. I think the people who die well, who die happy, are often people who, even if they've had lives of suffering, who are able to be grateful for the things that they did have in this life. Someone to love, you know, a job in which they found meaning. And I realize that's, that's in a sense maybe uh, more straightforward for some people than others. But I think because being is good at bottom, all of us, if we can sort of look back at things clearly, both with the eyes that sort of see the, the despair and the eyes that see the reasons for joy, there are reasons to be grateful for having lived, right? Even if it's all coming to an end for me, when it all comes to an end for me at some point, uh, not only is it better to be than not be, pace people like, uh, uh, Benatar, the South African anti-natalist and things like this. I think it's better to be than not to be. I think even as my life's coming to an end, I should recognize it's better to have been never than never have to bend, right? So say, say we bracket all this eschatological talk of God redeeming the world and not to say it's not the case, but let's just bracket it for the moment. Even if everything ends in the dark eternal night of thermodynamic equilibrium, after entropy has its way with the universe over billions and billions and billions of years and the expansion of the universe rips everything apart into nothingness, it still will be better that it all existed for a time than that it didn't. And that there were people in the world like you and me who were able to appreciate the beauty of it and who were able to talk with each other and try and understand it and grapple with it a little bit. Even if that all comes to an end and it doesn't last, I think it's better that things have been than that they never would have been. So I think we can bracket these kind of uh, theological, theodicy-based, but-based logics that sort of justify the limitations or the finitude of this world based on being paid back in some future that I don't quite understand yet. E even this world, with its 
finite limits, with its ending, with its suffering, even this world is a world that, that, uh, that we should appreciate being in. I want it to be better. I wish there was less violence. I wish there was less poverty. I wish there was less racism and homophobia and misogyny and sectarianism. There's all kinds of ways in which I wish the world were better, and I think we should work to make the world better in those ways. But even in a world rent with suffering, which it will always be, I think there are reasons to celebrate being here. And your position, I take it, is is in effect, uh, you may have never even thought about it this way, a, a kind of affirmation of what Nietzsche is talking about when he, uh, you know, this is a, a strange thing when people first read Nietzsche, he, he thinks that Platonism and Christianity are basically the same thing. And of course, when you first read this, you think, wait a minute, Plato lived long before, you know, Jesus and Christianity is a much later development, et cetera, et cetera. But Nietzsche's point is simply, that both Platonism and Christianity have definitely Platonism. In, Pla in Christianity, you, you could say it has a tendency to, mm -hmm. so it's not quite as obvious. But Nietzsche talks about otherworldliness. In other words, making another world the only world that really matters and thus devaluing this world. Right. And it, it sounds like what you're saying is, no, actually, that's not the right way to think about it this world actually is valuable in and of itself. So absolutely. I think, um, yeah, the, again, sort of acknowledging the, the limitations of my own work, there, I think there are a number of other philosophical positions with which mine has real similarities. And I, I try and address them and distinguish my position from them in the final chapter. Nietzsche is one of those figures because I think the the sort of uh, the yay saying affirmative aspect of Nietzsche has a lot of strong strong parallels with what I'm talking about that this world itself is good that we should acknowledge it that we should affirm it uh, you know in some separate sense because I think what I'm writing can apply for Catholics and evangelicals and other people too there may be some you can maybe put to the side, maybe I've got some hope, not in the deep hope sense, but in the wish fulfillment sense. You can still kind of have a hope for another world, uh, but you really should be focused on the goodness of this one, right? Um, where I kind of part ways with Nietzsche, and it'll be interesting here given your expertise, you can maybe um, push back a little bit if you'd like. But it, it's, uh, what, what I push back um, against Nietzsche on is this. He's got a doctrine, this doctrine of eternal recurrence, the eternal recurrence of the same, which is only spoken about a few places in Nietzsche and people interpret it differently. But he does say, look, one version of that is I should wish for everything that's the case about the world to come back and happen again infinitely into the future. Every breath, every sigh, every Every little thing that happens, I should wish to happen into the future. I, I don't want to embrace that. One way I put it in the book is that we can have a full-throated, um, fully endorsed amor mundi, love of the world, without an unreflective amor fati, a love of things that are a love of fate, a love of things that are happening in the world. So. Uh, 
I don't want to be backed into a position in which my love of the world causes me to, to affirm that, uh, well, that infinitely into the future, Russia should invade Ukraine or Japanese Americans should be rounded up in internment camps or centuries of misogyny or homophobia or racism should be repeated or things like that, right? So this is actually a longer part of the book, how to distinguish this, and, and I might not be able to do it all off the tip of my tongue from memory. But I basically uh, say from Nietzsche, his, his affirmation of the world, this sort of yay saying to the world, I'm, I'm all for that, but I want to detach it from the necessity to say yes in the same way to all things in the world. Um, you know, it, maybe one of my most scandalous jabs at Nietzsche is that I really think, in some sense, eternal recurrence is theodicy without the theos, right? It's asking me to accept, and not just accept, to actually endorse all the things that I think are evil in the world, because if I say I don't, I don't endorse those, I'm not really looking at them in the, in the sort of fullest, most honest perspective. For theodicy, it would be God's perspective. For Nietzsche, it would be this kind of perspective from beyond the values that I current ha currently have. So it's, it's important for me, and we can talk about this more if you'd, if you'd like, or we can move on. It's important for me to distinguish between accepting the fact that there are quote-unquote evils about the world that I can't change and I do have to accept. Death, entropy, suffering, those are mysteries that I don't fully understand, but to rail against them would be foolish, right? I, the Stoics have something there that you know, to, to sort of rail against death as, as, as if it's not something I'm going to have to grapple with is just a kind of foolishness. It's only going to make me miserable. But I think individual cases of evil, this man in front of me who needs food, this person in front of me who's a, who, who needs shelter, a refugee, this child who has a disease that we should help to try and cure, specific cases of evil we ought to resist. We ought not accept those as part of either God's perfect plan or Nietzsche's revaluation of values. So, so uh, I, I would agree with you, and um, one of the things I do in the work I've done on, on Nietzsche is to argue that if, if Amor Fati is the goal, then Nietzsche is himself not able to live up to that. And if, that, if that's really the project, then I don't think he, he can manage that. Right. And I, I think at the end, Unfortunately, that is once once again like nihilism or, or relativism, namely something that you can't really live out. Um, it, it, you can talk about it, but you it's it's not really, yeah. not really possible to live like that. Yeah, I, I, and I'd, I'd just add one other thing to that is that I, I don't think we, so not only is it not possible, I don't think we ought to try and I don't think we ought to hold it up as some sort of as, as, as some sort of truth that we fail to recognize because we're too weak. So if Nietzsche can't live up to Amor Fati, that may well be, in fact, I'm sure you're right, it is in part because no one's really a nihilist in the sense we've been discussing. No one's really a relativist in the sense we've been discussing. 
But I wouldn't want to back myself either into a position where I was affirming that, oh, well, relativism, relativism and nihilism are the real truth of things. We're just not psychologically equipped to accept it. And so we have to have some base level faith, whether that's faith in the goodness of being or a thicker face, faith in Christianity or something else like that. I, I think, I mean, this may lead to other topics, right? Um, the, the things that we've been talking about on the more positive side, the things that elicit wonder, the things that elicit joy, the things that call us to love, those things are just as real, I think, as the things that counsel despair. And to ignore either side, um, you know, it's pessimists and optimists are each looking at only half of the facts, mm -hmm. so to speak, right? And what I'm trying to do with melancholic joy is to look at all of it honestly, right? Um, and, and it's an open question as to whether that would be more appropriately be described as melancholic joy, right? A, a joy that has a kind of melancholy to it or joyful melancholy, right? Uh, there's someone else, I can't remember which author it is, that sort of, and, um, it's not just one, right? You know, there's a lot of people that will describe Nietzsche as a kind of joyful pessimist, right? Um, yeah, I mean, so I think there is a way of, of reading Nietzsche as something that gets quite close to what I'm saying, or I guess it would be more appropriate to say reading what I'm saying is something that gets quite close to Nietzsche. But there's sort of two points I make in the book. One is I think that Nietzsche is too easily read as, I, I, think, I think his, his criticisms of religion are, they're read too superficially by many of his readers, right? I mean, you've got a book called Pious Nietzsche in which you, you argue that we ought to be looking at Nietzsche much more carefully than we, um, than we normally do when we, when we think of his criticism, criticisms of religion. So I, insofar as we're thinking melancholic joy is pretty close to Nietzsche, I would first want to get a better sense of what we think about Nietzsche's critiques of religion. And secondly, and, and much more importantly, I'm just not going to go all the way down the garden path with the eternal return of the same, the eternal recurrence. That's something I understand why Nietzsche pushes it. I have a kind of respect for it even, this sort of full, full commitment to this world without any attempt to deny it for something that could be better in practice or in theory. But I just don't think full, complete amor mundi requires amor fati, right? This world is good. I absolutely affirm that. I think it's fundamental to what I'm arguing in my book, but I don't think that requires me to embrace fully the, the history of this world, including the evils, the specific evils that have unfolded in it, right? I don't want to, when Nietzsche says eternal recurrence should wish for the return of every breath and every sigh, parenthetically in there are difficult, like every rape, every genocide. I mean, those are not things that I'm willing to say, yes, I want that to happen again. I, I, if this world repeated 
itself over and over again into the future, I'm all for that. The world is great. The world is good. It's good that people live in it. Um, but geez, I'd certainly hope we improved things each time we did it because yes. there have been there have been real missteps in in this cycle through things. It's interesting what you say um, because one of the things that's going through my mind as you're talking is that the 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 acceptance of nihilism requires it seems to me some kind of knowledge to which I think we don't have access mm. that would enable us to say oh it's all just meaning meaningless um, I can say with 100% certainty that it's all meaningless and it strikes me that that's not something you can do either. Right. It, it's sort of the, the you know the opposite problem of you know people who say well you know God has a plan and this these things all will work out in the Holocaust yeah it's a problem but you know it, it's part of God's plan and it will work out well yeah of course that seems like a crazy thing to say um, if for no other reason than it presumes an awful lot of knowledge about God's plan and how God operates and his idea of causality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so the, the, the problem is on the other side, you know, uh, just a, a kind of radical affirmation of nihilism or, or relativism, that doesn't seem to have enough justification either. Yeah, this issue of justification I think is important because it cuts both ways and both ways are important, I think. So often, uh, atheists or a, a certain sort of questioning person is going to say, well, look, the, the burden of proof is on the theist to sort of show that w we need something like God to explain these sorts of phenomenon, right? Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, and, and fair play, you know, questions of a thicker kind of faith, properly religious faith, um, we, we could talk about that if we if we want to go that direction. But um, it, it cuts on the other side, too. So the, the person who wants to say um, nihilism is true, for example, right, um, who wants to say that there's no meaning at all in the universe, uh, I think there's a burden of proof on that person as well mm -hmm. because that person is also denying seeming facts about the world. These, these other more positive facts I've been saying, right, that that there is love, that there is wonder, that there is joy. People experience these sorts of things. And, and back even to the base existential level that you've mentioned a few times, right? That no one actually lives as a relativist or a nihilist. There, there is a kind of brute fact there as well. So if you were going to try to make the nihilistic argument, the, the burden of proof is on you as well to show that these other facts, I'm putting scare quotes here for your listeners, these other facts in the world need to be explained away somehow. There, there's a nice little quip I like from someone who's not a traditional philosopher, but who has some very, I think, insightful things to say on a bunch of different fronts. But uh, uh, you may remember uh, from your childhood or something, the, the uh, French aviator and author uh, Saint-Exupéry, mm -hmm. who wrote the book The Little Prince, mm -hmm. which a lot of people remember from their childhood. Um, he also wrote a bunch of great books about his life as a pilot and 
a sort of life in a kind of adventurous way. Um, and in one of these books, I believe it's in um, a book that's translated into English as Wind, Sand, and Stars. Um, and I think the French title is uh, uh, Homme de Terre, the Men of Earth or something. But um, he says, truth is not that which is demonstrable, but that which is ineluctable. So here's why I love that. So ineluctable is a sort of not common word for your listeners, but it basically means that uh, when something's ineluctable, it, you, it's unavoidable. No matter which direction you turn, you're forced to confront it again. So for example, imagine yourself in uh, a romantic relationship, either the beginning of it or the end of it. You're trying to figure out what you do, what you're going to do with this romantic relationship. And let, let's say you're, you're in love with someone, you're in a marriage, but now the marriage is falling apart and you keep trying to save it, you go to therapy, you're talking with your spouse, and, but no matter which direction you turn, you're eventually confronted with the uncomfortable truth that you no longer love them and the marriage has somehow disintegrated. Or the other way around, right? You've fallen in love with someone who, for all sorts of reasons, he's the wrong person for you and you, you're, you're trying to make excuses why this will never work, right? Um, uh, I live in the United States and she lives in Spain or there's all kinds of reasons relationships mm -hmm. might work. But then you wrestle with it, you turn back and forth and no matter which way you try to justify it being a bad idea, you can't avoid the fact that you love this person and you, you, have, to deal, you have to deal with that truth. So what I like about truth being ineluctable rather than demonstrable as I tell this to my students, demonstration, which we often think of a lot in the United States, right? In the United States, if, if someone doubts something, what's the most common comeback? Well, prove it, right? Show me, demonstrate it. Demonstration is important because demonstration is one way in which we show the ineluctability of something. Look, no matter how, how many times you do this experiment, the same thing happens over and over. You must accept it, right? Demonstration reveals ineluctability. But there are other kinds of ineluctability too that can't be demonstrated. The, the real property of truth is that we must accept it. Why? Because it's truth. It's ineluctable. But not all truths, I think, are susceptible to demonstration. So I'll, I'll right. joke with, right. um, well, there are a bunch of different examples like this. And so back to your point here about the, the nihilist or the pessimist, right? I think the suffering in the world and the real, I don't use this word lightly, the real tragedy of the world and the tragedy of our existence is ineluctable. And people who try to naively ignore that are on the wrong path. But I also think, and I would say to the pessimist or the nihilist, the beauty in the world and the goodness of the world is also ineluctable, which is precisely why no one really lives as a nihilist. And so those kinds of truths must be taken into account as well. Like we have to look at the world, to, to use a kind of scientific or social scientistic way of thinking about it, we need to look at all the data. <laughs> Right? Mm -hmm. And the death mm -hmm. and the tragedy and the betrayal, that's data, but so is the love and the forgiveness and the beauty. And they're both ineluctable. Yeah, and it, it, it strikes me that what you're, what you're saying here in a certain sense is that 
to go to either side requires that we conveniently ignore the data that doesn't really fit with that viewpoint. I think that is an excellent way to put it. That's exactly right. I think that, that too often we only look at half the facts, like which half we happen to favor is going to determine whether we become an optimist or a pessimist or a, a sanguine person or a melancholic person. Um, Let's wrap up the interview, and I have one last question for you, and I don't know how you will like this question. <laughs> um, here's a thought. People often talk about the meaning of life. Hmm. It seems to me that one of the problems with talking that way it, it, well, the first problem with talking about, about that way is the the, as if there's some thing that we need to, like, say, well, this is the meaning. And from what I'm getting from, from what you're saying about your book, it seems like that kind of a, a, a question, asking about the something or other, is really beside the point. It, it kind of misses uh, the fact that, that there isn't um, just one thing. Does that make sense to you? It does, yeah. And I think that's an important point. I mean, um, a lot of people have asked me, you know, is this book about the meaning of life? It's a, it's a bit of a stereotypical question that uh, philosophers get. I'm sure you've gotten it a bunch of times. And, and my book, in a way, kind of begs that question given its subject matter. But in the book itself, I tend to talk less about the meaning of life and more about the meaningfulness of life or the meaninglessness of life. I mean, I think that's what it's really about. Not is there, as you said, the, is th it's not about a meaning for life, but just whether about life itself is meaningful. And I guess part of what I'm arguing is that it is meaningful. And the full implication of that isn't something we have to work out in detail, right? So uh, to come back to something we already touched on earlier, I think life, the life you and I are living now with the people we love and the things we value, that life is meaningful and it will have been meaningful even if in the end there's nothing left, right? Humanity ends, the earth is gone, the sun expands to become a red giant. Um, so whether the meaningfulness of life is something we make while we're here or something we recognize in reality itself, I suspect it's both and kind of uh, argue for that um, in the book. But the meaningfulness of life is I think part of what resists full despair or giving into just melancholy without the job without the joy to remember that or to be to train yourself a lot of the last chapter of this book uh, draws on some work from Pierre Adot and other people about learning to see the world to experience the world in a in a different way and when we're able to do that I think that the meaningfulness of life becomes one of those ineluctable things that we have to recognize is there. So yeah, the meaning of life is an important question, but I think the meaning of life might be different for 
you and I compared to someone else. And there's lots of different ways to live out meaning in life. But, but life, I think, being is meaningful in the sense that it's good and there's something there we should be affirming. I think that's the perfect place to wrap up the interview. Dr. Trainer. thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy to speak with you. It's been a very interesting and worthwhile interview. So just to remind you, I've been speaking to Professor Brian Trainer, author of Melancholic Joy on Life Worth Living. And I hope you'll join us for our next episode.